Over, <coughs> over the last weeks, we've talked a lot about mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings of Vedana, mindfulness of the hindrances, <coughs> the factors of awakening, the Four Noble Truths. So those are all included <coughs> in the first, second, and fourth foundations of mindfulness, respectively. We haven't talked so specifically about mindfulness of mind, which is the third foundation. And we received a note from a yogi asking if we could say just a few words about practicing this third foundation, mindfulness of mind. Fortunately, it's very simple. So the instructions in the sutta are very clear. In the description of how to practice mindfulness of mind, it says, when the mind is lustful, know that it is lustful. When the mind is free of lust, know that it is free of lust. When the mind is angry, know that it is angry. When it is free of anger, know that it is free of anger. When the mind is deluded, know that it is deluded. When it's free of delusion, know it is free of delusion. So it's this, it's this very simple awareness of the current state of mind. <clears throat> What's interesting about it is that in this particular way of working, there's nothing more we have to do than simply be aware of how the mind is. In the fourth foundation, working with the hindrances, it gives further instructions about seeing the hindrances, removing the hindrances. But in this foundation of mindfulness, we are simply being aware of the mind in its current state. No, the lustful mind is lustful, the mind free of lust is free of lust. The angry mind is angry, mind free of anger is free of anger. Deluded mind is deluded, mind free of delusion is free of delusion. And that goes on with two more categories. The contracted mind as contracted, which refers to the contraction of sloth and torpor. You know, when the mind is pulling in due to sloth and torpor. And so we know the contracted mind is contracted. Free of contraction is free of contraction. And the last is the distracted mind, to know the distracted mind due to restlessness as distracted. The mind free of distraction, know it is free of distraction. So what this section of the sutta is suggesting is that from time to time we simply check in with the quality of our mind. It's It's like checking the weather every morning. You know, is it cold? Is it warm? Is it windy? Is it freezing? 
And we're simply noticing, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. It's a reminder, to be mindful in this way is a reminder that our task in this regard is simply to be mindful. And mindfulness means being aware of all of these different weather patterns of the mind without greed, without hatred, without delusion, without identification, even when those are the states we're being mindful of. We're simply seeing, oh, this is the lustful mind, this is the angry mind. Because in that very moment of being mindful of them, we are not filled with anger, we are not filled with lust. The mindfulness has extricated ourselves from identification with them. The more subtle aspect of this teaching is the instruction not only that we should be aware of the lustful, angry, deluded mind when they're there, but we should be aware when they're not there. And this is what we often miss, you know, because the presence of these states often makes, make themselves known quite clearly because they're strong. But when the mind is free of lust, free of desire, free of wanting, free of anger, free of delusion, we may overlook or ignore <coughs> the quality of the mind at that time. It's as if we are continually looking for trouble. And <coughs> when trouble is not to be found, then we think nothing important is happening. So it gets very instructive to become familiar, to recognize, to be aware of the mind that is at peace. Know the mind free of lust as being free of lust, free of anger as being free of anger, free of delusion. The mind that's not contracted in, in sloth, not distracted in restlessness. So acknowledge those times when the mind is in this more peaceful state, you know, not flavored by those particular <coughs> defilements. So just one other little pointer in becoming aware of mindfulness of mind <coughs> and picking out or learning to recognize uh, these particular states when they arise there's one teaching where the Buddha said, there's no fire like lust, no grip like anger, no net like delusion. And it's just, I found it very interesting <coughs> that he used those images because he's suggesting one way we might be feeling the presence of these states so we might not immediately pick up that there's desire or lust in the mind, but we might feel a kind of burning. And that becomes a signal to us. Well, there's a burning from lust, from excessive wanting. Or to feel the grip of anger. I think we 
probably all familiar with that. You know, when anger is present, it feels like we're being gripped. Or the net, the covering of delusion, where we really can't see much of anything. So this is another way of checking in with the mind, of being mindful of the mind. We can go through just this little checklist, you know, of the five states of lust, anger, delusion, contracted, distracted. <coughs> and we can also take a moment just to recognize what these states feel like in the mind and body. And they might feel like fire, grip, a net, or they might feel like something else to you. What's more important is to see how you're experiencing them, because the clearer you are about how you're experiencing these states, the easier it is to recognize when they're present and when they're not present. So this is just a little elaboration of what you've been doing already. I mean, this has been woven into the instructions all along, but it's just very explicitly mentioned in how to practice this third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind. So in this sitting this morning and for the day, just periodically check in. Check the mind's weather report. Now, how is the mind at this time? Is it filled with these states or free of the states? And notice what it's like when these states are not present in the mind. Notice the freedom, the peace, the calm of that. Do you have any questions about your practice or the instructions this morning? Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about the difference between, or actually let me just phrase this a little different. So I was having a lot of desire arising in this previous sitting, just the end of the retreats coming, and I'm kind of excited about the future. Um, I'm not sure if it's that clinging or just craving to like manifest things in my life. Um, the desire is there, but it's not that like feeling of I need it. Like if I want like a 
salad. Really bad. And I pass like the garden salad place. I'm like, I need that salad. Uh, there isn't that feeling. So is that just craving, even though it's constantly arising for like an hour? <laughs> or is that clinging because it's continuing to arise and then branches off to everything I want in my life, not just a salad? So the question was, with a lot of desire arising in the mind, uh, especially toward the end of the retreat and all the things that he wants to do, uh, but doesn't feel like it's a burning desire, uh, but a continuing flow of desires, and <coughs> just trying to get a sense of what part of it, what part of that is desire or craving, and what part of that is clinging. Uh, Given that it's things that are not yet here, that you don't actually have, but are thinking about them, so on that side or that way of viewing things, it would be desire for them. So even though they're continually arising, you know, you could just see it as desire, wanting. I'm going to back up a step before we get to the clinging. It's also really useful. Uh, to see that a lot of future anticipation, and this will this will naturally be coming up, you know, in the last week of the retreat, thoughts of the future. Very often, uh, I find it helpful to see the desire component, the wanting component, but also the component of conceit, which in the in the Buddhist context is that sense of I am, but I am not only in comparison to other people, but I am over time. I was this, this, and this. I am this. I will be this. You know, so a lot of our future anticipation, it's really, it's the process of cloning ourselves into the future. And what I found was that sometimes, sometimes naming it as desire, Sometimes naming it, oh, that's mana, that's conceit, that's the I, I will be. Right? Uh, sometimes that's, that's hitting the right point to release the mind from the fascination with it. You say, oh, this is just this defilement of mana working. So you can play with you know, how you're naming it and which aspect is predominant. The clinging part could come in you're not clinging to that future experience because it's not here yet, right? So that's still on the desire part. But you could be clinging to the very uh, feeling of wanting. Right? Very often, if we're not seeing clearly and we're not seeing the dukkha of wanting, it's like we want to want. You know, and we're holding on to the dubious pleasure of wanting. So then it would be clinging to the wanting itself, not so much to the object of the wanting. So you can, you can kind of explore this in different ways. Uh, but having said all that, don't get too analytic. <laughs> you know, it's like it's interesting and you can kind of play with it from different sides, but basically you want to sit back and relax and just watch the passing show of it all.
Well, I, I think that I might have phrased it a little differently, or if not, I'll phrase it differently now. The question that I found most instructive in that regard is not so much where is the mind, but can I find what is knowing? So we hear a sound and we know we're knowing it. And then the question, can I find what's knowing? So that's, that's like a direct instruction to actually look to see if we can find it. And then we realize there's nothing to find. And yet the knowing is happening. So that's a very interesting experience. Right? When we ask the question, where is the mind, we're already assuming that it's there to be found someplace. You know, it's hiding. But if we're asking, can I find what's knowing, then it's an open question. We don't know whether we can find it or not, and we're looking to see if we can. So I just experiment with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, let's do one at a time. Uh, how to distinguish knowing the state of mind from knowing the hindrance? They seem to be overlapping. They do overlap. In my understanding of how the uh, foundations of mind are divided, in the third foundation, we're simply acknowledging it's like this, it's like this, it's lustful mind, angry mind, absence of lust, absence of anger. In the fourth foundation, where those very states of mind are listed among the hindrances, <coughs> we are aware of the state of mind and recognizing that they are functioning as a hindrance. So that's why mindfulness of Dhamma, you know, Dhamma is a word that has many meanings, in the context of the Four Foundations, the translation I found most helpful is dhammas as categories of experience. So we're not only just in the bare experience of itself, but we see how they're functioning. So desire is functioning as a hindrance. The factors of awakening are functioning as factors of enlightenment. Right? So it's just adding another dimension of understanding how they're working in the mind as well as the bare experience of the state itself. Okay, so his, his comment is that in the moment might see that the mind, there's no lust in the mind, but to say the mind is free of lust or free of anger seems like it's going too far. <laughs> you know, that we feel it's lurking, <laughs> which... It's not just a knowing about it, it's a feeling that it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there are two different elements here. One is... These states can be there in a latent form. 
which means the potential for them to arise is there. Given the right circumstances, we know anger can still arise, lust can still arise. They're not arising in the moment, but we recognize their latent potential. So that's one thing. The other is they may be there in the present moment, but not in a very obvious way. So these are two different things. When you check to see is lust present, not anger present or not, you want to see which of those two, when you're having a sense it's there someplace, check to see whether it's there in the present moment in a subtle form, or is it not there in the moment, but you know it's there latently. These, these are two different things, and you just want to acknowledge one or the other. So just as an example, and I think I've mentioned this in the hall, sometimes when we're working with that question, you know, just check the attitude in the mind, which is, which is a tool for exploring this third foundation. We're just checking in. Sometimes I might be sitting just feeling the breath. I could check in, is there lust in the mind, or is there greed in the mind, and really, at first, not thinking there isn't. I'm just, I'm just feeling the breath coming in and out. But if I look more carefully and in asking the question, very often, I will feel the mind relax back from a wanting that I hadn't even recognized was there. You know, it's just a subtle, could be just a subtle leaning into the next moment, or wanting the next breath, or wanting a kind of calm. So that's actually the case where greed or wanting is present, but in a subtle form you know, that we, we may not have been aware of. So that's why this checking in is really helpful. Um, assuming that the um, mindfulness of thoughts is in this third foundation, um, is the suggestion that even seemingly kind of random, without emotional charge thoughts, if you look closely enough, are fueled by one of these five kind of defilements. And if that's the case, then does that mean that if at some moment there is an absence of all five of these, then there's no thoughts at all? Okay, so the question is, assuming that thoughts are included in this third foundation, and that... Uh, if there are thoughts in the mind uh, and we look, we would see that they're probably fueled by one of these five mind states. So at those times when there are no thoughts, does that suggest that these mind states are not present? Is that? Uh, not necessarily, and generally speaking, first, uh, a little uh, disclaimer. As much as I've worked with this and you know, just written a whole book on Satipatthana and all that, I'm not a Buddhist scholar. So I'm just sharing my take on it. Uh, my take on thought as an object would not be so much... Uh, in the third foundation, but in the fourth foundation. Uh, 
you know, especially with the aggregates, you know, as, as a mental formation. But there can be thoughts that are not fueled by defilement. I mean, when you're doing metta, you know, there are thoughts in the mind and it's, they're wholesome or, or uh, thoughts of compassion. So thought in and of itself doesn't imply an unwholesome mind state. A two-minute, totally freeing exercise. This is going to change your life. <laughs> it is. Part of the sutta, following each set of instructions, is a refrain, which we've mentioned different times. And part of that refrain is, be aware of whatever the particular object mentioned is. Be aware internally, externally, and both. Okay? And then it, there's other aspects to the refrain, but I want to emphasize just this one. Very interesting to be mindful of the mind externally. So, just as an example, you know, suppose you're either here on retreat or out in the world and you become aware of someone being very angry or very happy or very whatever, where the mind state is very obvious. There's a big difference in our usual response is where we're, re where we're reacting to their behavior based on that mind state. Now, suppose somebody's very angry and doing all kinds of stuff, and then we get reactive to what they're doing, and so we get upset. If we were to be mindful of the mind externally and really recognize, oh, anger is present in this person, you know, or greed is present in this person, or whatever. Joy is present in this person. Just that degree of mindfulness depersonalizes what's happening. It's simply acknowledging, yes, this is the mind state that's present. And when we're relating on that level, it really frees us to a large extent from our own reactivity and allows us then to take appropriate, have the appropriate response, but not based on our reactivity, based on the mindfulness, oh, this is present in this person. You know? Is this clear? It's a very, it's a very different uh, holding of the situation. And just as being mindful internally of our mind states frees us from our own reactivity of aversion or judgment about what we're experiencing, being mindful externally frees us from that same reactivity and judgment. And it doesn't mean that we don't necessarily respond, but we're responding from a balanced place rather than a reactive place. Uh, so it's just a little thought to play with. If you'd like to get an clear experience of Vedana, I suggest you step outside today. It's cold. <laughs> it's very cold. And as the wind hits your face. But what's interesting in that, if 
you feel like making the experiment is you can feel the cold, which is rupa, the aggregate rupa. You can feel the vedana, very unpleasant, very obvious. <laughs> and then notice the nature of the knowing. So there's the knowing of the unpleasant. And see that the knowing, the nature of the knowing is unaffected by the unpleasantness of the Vedana, because its function is simply to know. And just, you know, you're outside and it's really cold and unpleasant, you're knowing it. Come inside, it's warm, more comfortable, you're knowing it. Pay attention to the fact that the nature of the knowing is exactly the same. That's another way of exploring our wonderful climate. <laughs>